0: The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Let's pray as we... Let's pray before we dig into the Word of God. Creating us a clean heart... Oh God, and renew your steadfast spirit within us. Cast not us away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from us, but renew us. And renew your spirit within us. Jesus, we come to you confessing our sins and our shortcomings. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you have mercy on us. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. and Thank you for the forgiveness you offer us when we humbly come to you. And as we hear your word this morning, Lord, I pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to talk to our hearts, to convict us. I pray that the words that you have for us this morning will be things that we live here and practice them in our own lives. And so be with us. And Holy Spirit, fill this place as we worship you. Through the sacrament of your word thank you for this i pray in jesus name amen and uh just before i start i just want you to know that uh, rachel berg and joe will be back there offering prayers for anyone who needs it you know i've been thinking lately how We just need to be a church that is really prayerful. You know, there's so much going on in the world. But one of the things that we can do is pray, right? Pray to the person who holds the world in his hands. He knows what's going on, and he's just waiting for us to bring our supplications to him. And so if you have anything in your heart this morning that you need prayers for, join Rachel Berg. Uh, will be uh, back there uh, with you guys. <clears throat> so this morning we'll be continuing with our uh, sermon series, The Kingdom. And uh, the title of sermon this morning is How to Enter uh, the Kingdom of God. And our intro has been this. You are made to be part of something bigger than yourself. Something bigger than any job or a hobby or a political party or even your own family. God made you first and foremost to be part of his family and his kingdom. God's kingdom is your ultimate allegiance. When you understand the good news of the kingdom and become a child of God, everything finds its right and healthy place in your life. In this sermon series, we'll invite you to see the kingdom of God and submit yourself completely to the life-giving authority of King Jesus. And I just want to thank Daniel for, you know, his sermon last week. And and I hope you guys were convicted as I was because I it felt like somebody threw a brick uh, into my face. And, I mean, just... just Think about what Jesus said. Not everyone who calls me Lord will be saved. And this is from Matthew chapter uh, 7 verse 21. And yet, these were people who were prophesying in Jesus' name. They drove out demons and they performed many miracles. And yet, Jesus said to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And the whole time that Daniel was preaching, I was asking myself, is this me? Is this going to be me? And there are days in my life where I don't feel worthy to be in God's kingdom, even though I've given myself to Jesus. But there are many days where I'm just a lazy Christian, and I don't even deserve to be called a Christian. And I don't know if you've had those days. And the sermon was just convicting, but it also forces me to uh, re-examine my faith. And as I was preparing this sermon uh, this morning, it was also convicting. And, you know, one of the hardest things about preparing a sermon is God gives you word to share with his body. But I always have to ask myself, am I even doing these things? And I have to be honest. I'm not. I'm in the same place with you guys. I need this sermon just like you guys do. We are all in the same boat. How do we enter into the kingdom of God? How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? As I was thinking about this passage, I think one of the significant things that has to happen for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God is that, one, there has to be a divine intervention, a divine element, which only Christ can do for us. And so how can anyone enter into the kingdom of God? The first most important point is there has to be a divine intervention, a divine element, which only Christ can do for, uh, for us. One of our passages this morning is John chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, and follow along with me as I read. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous sign you're doing. and the spirit flesh gives birth to flesh but the spirit gives birth to spirit nicodemus like most christians who grew up in the church we know what the bible says he knew the lord really well and yet he had that burning question in his heart how can one enter into the kingdom of God but Jesus' answer to Nicodemus was probably not the answer that he was hoping for because all of his life he had diligently observed the law the rituals of Judaism he had joined the ultra-religious Pharisees and became even a member of the Sahindrin and now Jesus calls him To forsake all of that and start all over again to abandon the entire system of works of righteousness in which he had placed his hope in. To realize that human effort was powerless to save. What was Jesus' answer? Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's like, Jesus, what are you talking about, water and spirit? Well, Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this truth because it was something with which he was familiar with. Water and spirit uh, often refers symb- symbolically in the Old Testament to mean spiritual renewal and cleansing. And so take uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 24 to 27. For example, this is what it says. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle water on you, and you will become clean. I will clean you from all your filthy sins and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statuses, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This was what Jesus had in mind when he told Nicodemus, you have to be born water and the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus was very acquainted to this idea because he knew the Old Testament. And against this Old Testament backdrop, Jesus' point was unmistakable. Without the spiritual washing of the soul, a cleansing accomplished only by the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. It has to be a divine intervention. And then Jesus continued by emphasizing that the spiritual cleansing is Holy, the work of God, not the result of human effort. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. From verse 6. Just as only human nature can beget human nature, so only the Holy Spirit can beget spiritual transformation. And only the Holy Spirit can produce the spiritual fruits that is necessary. For us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, there has to be a divine intervention. But sadly enough, this is our favorite part about Christianity a Christianity where we don't have to do anything. It's like Jesus does it all, I don't have to do anything. Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this about cheap grace. Because the church these days, it's all about cheap grace. Jesus paid it all. I don't have to do anything. And this is what Bonhoeffer has to say about cheap grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks. The sacraments the forgiveness of sin and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cost, at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessing with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since cost was infinite, The possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. This is the kind of Christianity we love, a religion that doesn't cost us anything. Jesus paid it all, and yes, he did. But we often forget the part in that song that says, all to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, but all to him we owe. And I'm not trying to downplay the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Because without it, why even are we here? We need the divine intervention. Jesus' death and resurrection means everything for us. But it doesn't end here. It doesn't end here. And if we think it ends here then Bonhoeffer is right. We just love cheap grace. And so how can one enter into the kingdom of God? There has to be a divine intervention, but it doesn't end there. There has to be a second element. And that second element is a faithful human response required from us by God. There has to be a faithful human response that God requires from us. Turn to me to John chapter, chapter 8, uh, verse 1 uh, to 11. And this story illustrates uh, the point that I'm trying to make. So John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He appeared again in the temple court, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin I, I love this story but the last part just made me uncomfortable I'm like Jesus you did everything right you showed those hypocrites and if the story had ended with Jesus just saying go I don't condemn you either I'd be like great because we love that part don't judge me don't condemn me but that wasn't enough for Jesus Jesus had to tell her go and sin no more because it wasn't just enough not to condemn her but he wanted her to repent go and sin no more and that part as Christians We find it really hard. Here are what some scriptures have to say about how to enter into the kingdom of God. And I'm just going to read them and so feel free uh, to write them down. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is a faithful human response. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the who does the will of my Father. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 9, verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 to 10. Or oh, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy or drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 to 21 now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger Rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then, my personal favorite, John 3 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have. And eternal life I have a, a story to share uh, three summers ago uh, my host uh, family uh, they were out of town and I had my I had my whole siblings with me and you know Sunday morning uh, have a lake house in Shelton that my own host family own, and so we decided to go to the lake house but in the car as we were driving I was like oh it's Sunday I need to give this kid a sermon so we don't just waste a day so I preached from John three sixteen. okay so they come from a very reformed church right and so you know we talked about God's love and they're like yeah we know that and then I talked about the human response, and the human response in John three sixteen is belief, right? That's something we have to do, and in the Reformed tradition, right? You saved, you don't have to do anything. God just decides who he saves, and who he doesn't, and I find that problematic and from what i say you can probably figure out that i'm not much of a reformed theologian i'll probably say i'm a three point reformed theologian all the other things that all the other things i don't agree with you know and and if we read these passages like the themes that keep coming up are things that we need to do right? There is the divine element, but also it requires a response from us. Repent and believe. That is something that we have to do. Don't do the things of the flesh. Something that we have to do. Become like little children to inherit the kingdom of God. That is something Christ wants us to do. Do the will of the Father. Take care of the poor, feed them, clothe them. These are all faithful human responses that we have to do. Salvation is a gift for anyone who wants it. But if you do not accept it, if you do not believe in it, and live by the condition in which that gift is made possible for you, why do you expect to be saved? and to inherit the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he says. The cross has set us free from sin, and so why do we continue to be slaves to sin? Jesus died for me, yay. I don't have to do anything. It's like, that's not what Christianity is about. Grace is costly. Why do we keep on sinning? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 uh, to 32, Jesus gives uh, this parable. A father goes and asks one of his, one of his sons. It's like, go into the vineyard and work. And the son says, No. But later on, that son went and did what his father asked him to. Now, the father went to the second son and asked him, go into the vineyard and work. And the son says, yes. But he didn't go and do the work. And so Jesus asked the people who were sharing this parable and asked them, who was obedient? And they said, the one that said no, but later on went and did the work. And Jesus' point was, the religious people who know the law, they usually don't do what it tells them to. But the tax collectors, the adulterers, the sinners, they are the ones who do it. And so we have been saved. We have been given this precious gift, right? The day you accepted Jesus, you are probably, yes, I'm ready to go. Jesus, I'm ready to follow your law, to honor you. But then down the road, we forgot. We just continue to do our own thing. We just continue to leave our old ways. We become like the son who said yes at first, but didn't do it. One of the scariest passages in the Bible for me is Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It says, It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because today, because they are crucifying the Son of God all over again, subjecting Him to public disgrace. This is a very disturbing passage. Because like Matthew 7, these are people who, like, Lord, Lord, they were doing great great things in God's name, and yet Jesus said, I don't know you. And in Hebrews, it's talking about people who have tasted the Holy Spirit, people who have believed. And yet, these people can fall away. And if you grew up with the idea that once saved, always saved, I mean, I love that idea. And I want to believe it is true. But there are passages in the Bible that makes me question that passages like this. Because you can argue all you want. Maybe these people weren't saved. Can you really taste the Holy Spirit if you're not really saved? Can you really? Because the gift of the Spirit is given to those who believe. And yet, these people had it all. But something happened. That caused them to fall. And that's why in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Paul says. Wherefore am I beloved. As you have always obeyed. Not as in my presence. But much more in my absence. Work out your salvation. With fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is Paul talking about? You have been saved. God has done that for you. But it doesn't end there. Don't be a cultural Christian. Don't, be, don't get too comfortable. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because the divine element requires a faithful response. Going back to Bonhoeffer, this is how he describes costly grace. He says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Christ at which the disciples leaves his net and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it cost a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God his only son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. What has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. What is our faithful response? Costly grace. It costs God something. So how can you enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus' blood on the cross and his imputed righteousness has made the kingdom of God accessible to you. That is the divine intervention that only Jesus can do for you. And you have that if you have put your trust and faith in Jesus. You have access to that already. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can go through the Father except through me. Only Jesus can grant you that access. But now that you have that access, what do you do? We are called to faithfully respond. And because we have access to the kingdom through Jesus, we have to repent from our sinful ways, believe what Jesus has done for us, And do the will of the Father. That is our faithful response. The divine intervention and the faithful response has to go together. You cannot separate them. You read Paul's letters. Yes, Paul is always talking about grace. But Paul also talks about our faithful response because of the grace that we have. Grace has to be costly, because it costs Jesus so much. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be confirmed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by tasting you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. To discern the will of God about what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. If you're still unrepentant in your sin, you cannot discern the will of God. What is the will of God for us? Jesus answered it simply by saying, Love God and love the people around you. That is the will of God. How do we love God? He said, If you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, be holy because I am holy. Worship me. Put me above everything else. Don't go back to your old life of sin. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Live a righteous life. Imitate Christ. That is how we love God. And how do we love people? In Matthew chapter 25, those, those people that Jesus called his ship, they are the ones who visited the poor, who took care of the oppressed, who visited the prisoners, who were there doing God's work. That is how we love people. The divine intervention and the faithful response have to go hand in hand. You cannot separate one from the other. We cannot be lazy Christians because there are too many lazy Christians in the world. And we shouldn't be one of them. And I have been a lazy Christian. I can confess that. And that is why this sermon was so hard for me to prepare. But the great thing about faithful response is God knows our weaknesses, He knows our shortcomings. And He knows that on our own, we cannot honor Him, we cannot faithfully respond. And that is why He gave us the Holy Spirit. But how many times in our lives do we stop and say, Holy Spirit, come help me? Or is it us just trying to do things on our own? I know when I ask the Holy Spirit for help, when I start my day with the Holy Spirit, my day usually goes, great. There's this spiritual reformation that happens in my heart so let's be a church that seeks the Holy Spirit we are in a covenant relationship with God in the Old Testament every time time God makes a covenant it's usually a relationship with two unequal parties there's God and there are people Right? what can we give God that he doesn't have or he cannot just take from us nothing But we need everything from God, right? And so we are in a new covenant with God. God has kept his end of the deal. He has made salvation accessible for you and me. His kingdom is wide open for you and me. Have you kept your end of the bargain? Have you kept the end of the bargain? Because he wants that from us. He required that from the Israelites in the Old Testament. When he made a covenant with them, he always kept his. And whenever they broke the covenant he made with them, he punished them. I mean, read the book of Judges and the book of Joshua. I mean, some of the ways he punished them was scary. And so we have a better covenant now with him in which the law is in our hearts he dwells in us and what does he require from us a faithful response because him giving his life for us cost him something and we cannot take that for granted grace cannot be cheap it has to be costly because it cost Jesus something And that's how we can enter into the kingdom of God. First, there has to be the divine element. And second, we have to have a faithful response. Every Sunday we take communion. Why do we do that? Because God calls us to respond faithfully to what he has done on the cross for us. When we eat communion, we remember we were bought at a price. He says, when you eat this, remember my body. When you drink this wine, remember the blood that I spilled for you on the cross. That is a faithful response because our faith, our trust in God calls us. respond faithfully and so as we eat communion this morning I invite you to examine your heart have you been living under cheap grace a grace that hasn't cost you anything or do you want to live under costly grace because you were bought at a price and because you were bought at a price Jesus wants something from obedience, repentance. That's how we can faithfully respond to Him and to be a part of His kingdom. And so Joe and Rachel Berg will be on the side offering prayers for anyone who needs it. And if you are here this morning and you haven't given your life to Jesus, this is a great place to start. He has died for you. You can have the gift of salvation. The divine element has been done. Jesus said, it is finished. All you have to do is come humbly, repent, and give your life to Him. And when you do that, live your life the way He wants you to. And if if that is you this morning, it's like pray in your heart, repent. And if you need prayers, Joe and Rachel Berg will be uh, back there. And so pray with me as we ready our hearts to take communion this morning. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for your kingdom which you had made available for us. And even though we haven't lived off to our calling, thank you for your gentle voice. Thank you for the Holy Spirit as always probing our hearts, calling us to repentance. And so as we take communion this morning, just pray that we will examine our hearts. Pray that the Holy Spirit will convict us in ways that we need conviction. And I just pray that we won't be Christians who take advantage of the cross, people who live the way we want to, but Christians who will abide in you and to do your will. So thank you for this we ask this morning. In Jesus' name.